Welcome to Love and Live Abundantly. I'm Alana. I'm Bill. Do you want to love more effectively? Do you want to live fully and love more courageously? We talk about what all that means. And how you can achieve it. Join Join us. us. Welcome back, everyone. We are talk. We are going to be talking today about anxiety and how our brain likes to keep us safe and not necessarily allow us to do the things that we want. Yeah, I, I think it would be helpful if we started with uh, an a working definition of anxiety. Okay, be- Go for because it. in in my classical education, uh, anxiety started out. Uh, I was I was once told that anxiety was the natural psychic energy that drives us all and keeps us moving. Oh, uh, that's an interesting definition, but not terribly useful on a day to day basis. No, uh, but but I th- I think that there's a there is that kind of underlying anxiety, that kind of vibration that happens in all human beings that that keeps us moving and keeps us oriented and makes us nervous if we're not doing something. Um, I've always thought that when adolescents say I'm bored, what they're really saying is I don't have a way to bind this anxiety. So I don't have something to do. And we adults will say to adolescents, well, get off your butt and do something. uh, When they say I'm bored. But the other definition of anxiety is the one I want us to deal with today. And that is the uh, around emotional management. Um, anxiety is defined as fear that has no reasonable object in the here and now. Okay. I mean, when, when you're anxious about something, I know that you, you, you could probably identify something that you, you reckon you're anxious about, but rarely is that the case. So, so the, the thing about anxiety is you don't know what you're scared of. You don't know what the terrible consequence is going to be. You're not sure when it's going to happen, or even if it's even likely to happen, but you still get tied up with this classic fear response. And that's the, that's the key that if you spent the next two weeks being frightened of something, it would take a toll on your body. Well, if you are bound by anxiety for the next two weeks, that's the same toll. So it's the rule is, is it's not fear if it doesn't happen in the here and now. There isn't a reasonable object to be afraid of. I mean, if, if a dog is snarling in your face, that's fear. If you are afraid of things that are fuzzy, that look sort of kind of like a dog that's not fear that's something else but anxiety the classic anxiety thing that i always taught my students was i'm up here teaching this class about anxiety and in a minute i'm going to point to one of you and you have to finish the class Mm. and every single person in the class could then identify that little gut-wrenching moment and understand what anxiety was and understand 
that it hadn't even happened yet. It wasn't even real yet. Yep. You know, I actually have heard a different um, definition of anxiety that I'd like to share. And that is anxiety is other people's expectations that we worry about. Other? I'm writing this down. Okay. Other uh people's expectations of what we're supposed to be doing. Well, that's an unreasonable object. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it, it comes back into the, you know, it reminds me of the trauma response of, you know, um, of freezing and wanting things to, you know, be or look a certain way. When we've experienced childhood trauma, um, you know, we... We're, we're always in that freeze mode. However, we fight or flight or fawn and fawn is to, you know, uh, we, we go back to the please and appease that we talked about a couple of weeks ago on, on the podcast. And so it's, it, it's how we've dealt with our trauma in the past. And so when we are feeling stress, right, because trauma and stress are, are a lot alike, um, our brains go back to being a kid and, and what helped us get through that trauma as a kid. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, however, now as adults, right, we want to do different things. We want to create different things. And, you know, sometimes it's not so easy because the fear comes in and what, what are other people going to think, right? It's got to be perfect. Um, you know, that's, like everything's in control. It's, you know, patty perfect. I like to say you know, where we think that we have to show up and everything has to be just right. Meanwhile, if we just JFDI, if we just do it, and even if it's not perfect, it, it still is, is as effective. At least mm -hmm. we're moving. <clears throat> Excuse me. I feel like as it, You've got to move past that a little bit. And I know that it's not always so easy with the anxiety on, um, you know, but it's learning to move through that process to have what it is that you really want. Yeah. The, the problem is that, as you point out, that in, in, in its genesis in the early days, um, you had this conditioned response that you did whenever you were faced with that stressor. With that, and that stressor was usually the promise of something bad, <clears throat> and so you would you you would do this thing, and that somehow helped you to avoid it, or yeah. it got you out of it, or got you away from it. So after a while, if you did it long enough, it became habituated, and that response became an automatic unconscious response, yes. which, in and of itself, started to bind anxiety started to relieve the fear so that some unconscious part of your head says, well, I know how to deal with stress. I know how to deal with anxiety. I'll just do this thing. And whether it's functional or not in the real world, it binds the anxiety internally. And so that now, now it's really habituated. Now you can't get rid of it. Yeah. Well, because at one time it saved us. I mean, more than one time, usually. Mm -hmm. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, so I say to you today, Oh geez, I see you're anxious. And I and how do I know that you're anxious? Well, because there's that thing you do or I'm geez, I'm feeling really anxious. And how do I know that I'm feeling really anxious? How do I know that it's, that it's the same old, same old? Well, it's because I'm responding in the same old, same old way. Yeah. And it reminds me that that in in twelve step programs they have that saying that they've stitched on a sampler on the wall, and it's that is if you keep doing what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. Absolutely. Well, so how do you break the cycle? Move through the fear. How do you do that? Well, I I feel like a big part of it is is your breath to help move through that anxiety and and you know by taking deep breaths we calm ourselves down it's a natural you know mood enhancer and it calms down our nervous system when we're feeling that anxiety um you know so i would say breathe lot lots of deep breaths and and keep going keep going and 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 making moves. So I feel like, you know, I, I think, I think there's one step that you, that you as like so many healthy people have taken already. And so it just doesn't occur to you. But the first step is to, to recognize, to call the beast, say the name of the beast. This is anxiety. And this is what I do in the face of anxiety. And to be able to be thoughtful about that and 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 be responsive to that so that there is a chance that you can do something different. I mean, I, I know you well enough. I know me well enough to know that at some level, we've already taken that big first step, perhaps a number of times, so that, that we can say, well, this is, this is an old, ugly friend. This is something that I has been around for way too long and it's not working for me anymore. So now I have to be able to sit and be real thoughtful about describing exactly what it is I do when I'm anxious. Because otherwise it just comes unawares and it's just happening to me and I'm out of control. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, and awareness is always, is always the first step. And I feel like once you have that awareness too, you have control over it because you can name it you know mm. you can say okay this is anxiety this isn't who I am this is just what I'm experiencing right now in this moment and it is not bigger than me and it's something that I can move through and be yeah, gentle with yourself in that process and and so many of my clients in fact I think this is probably true of me too think that that's somehow a simple process no, no I don't said it was simple. <laughs> no, I didn't say that you did for sure. The, the the there was an exercise we used to do that we actually we called it the Gumby exercise. And for people who are not my age, Gumby was a little cartoon figure that was kind of an amorphous shaped figure. And what we would do uh, for folks in the small group would be to say, so. What does your anxiety look like? Draw a Gumby figure. And in that Gumby figure, draw symbols and words in that Gumby figure, because that's you. And when you're feeling anxious, what does that look like? 
you know, where are you tense? Uh, what's happening with your breathing? Is there, are there little electric jolts going on in the back of your mind there? Where And people would come up with these really creative ways of stopping, stepping back and looking at themselves and saying, yeah, yeah, okay, I do this and I do that. And then my shoulders do this. And, and then the muscles in the back of my arms get real tight. And to, to be able to do that, um, they could then be more descriptive of what it is that's actually going on with them. Some folks found that that was helpful because they could simply say, all right, the tension in the back thing, that's the thing that happens for me. Maybe not for other people, but for me it does. So I'm going to do some exercises to stop that tension. Or uh, the, what you were saying about the breathing. Sometimes when people are anxious, they, they pant. And you're saying, gee, one of the really powerful things, and almost everybody benefits from that, is that deep breathing thing through the nose and out the mouth, in the nose, out the mouth, deep, deep belly breaths. Well, and even yeah. with that, I, I feel like with the breathing and then seeing those parts of your body at ease and not stressed, right? To release that tightness and to feel good throughout your body. And that, you know, one of the things that I like to do is, you know, part of my morning meditation is to, you know, imagine I happen to the sun, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm up when the, the sun is rising. And so when the sun comes up and that beam of light just going into the top of my head, and then I imagine it all throughout my body, um, you know, just being this healing energy and, you know, taking the deep breaths and using my imagination and thinking about how healthy I am and how I'm releasing the stress from those points in my body that I feel pain. Yeah, that, that that whole guided imagery thing is so powerful, isn't it? Yes, it is. It, it's like it's like one of those old science fiction movies where somebody gets to choose to live in an alternative reality for an hour or two. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It is. And and it's so powerful and it's something that we're not taught. You know, it, that's not part of the curriculum as a in grade school or high school or or any time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, too, I, I think. You know, and one of the things, you know, with with my position that I've taken on as a crisis specialist, you know, a couple of the, the team members have said, oh, well, you know, there's such a lack of resources and there's not enough help. And I remind them that 10 years ago, we didn't have everything that we have. We didn't know all of the things that, we didn't have the resources to help people. We didn't know how to handle things differently. And now we know. So we've come really far in 10 years and let's be grateful for that and not look at what we don't have. Um, the, the the glaring example is there was no nine eight eight. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so you know, I feel like that too with the anxiety and talking about it. Um, 
you know, there, there are more solutions out there for people to do besides take medication. I'm not saying that anybody should stop their medication, you know, however, there are additional tools that people can use in their lives to lessen that anxiety. And that you can do in your own living room and don't require a trip to the pharmacy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nothing like taking control of your life, huh? Yeah, and to it, it it brings up, you know, the hustle of how we're taught to work hard, work hard, work hard, work hard, work hard, and, you know, and always keep busy, always keep busy, and, and kind of like be, that rat race. And be perfect. Yeah, and, you know, keep up with the Joneses. And, you know, a, a few years ago, I moved from 2,200 square feet to 860 square feet, and... I have, geez, probably like an eighth of the belongings that I had in in my last house. And, you know, to me, it feels really good not having all of that stuff. You know, I, I, I feel like it's less things that I have to move along with me. And I feel like my energy just flows totally different once I gave up that trying to be perfect and look perfect in other people's eyes really yeah you were you were saying you you were talking a minute ago about stress <clears throat> excuse me and and its relationship to anxiety and it really does resonate with me that stress and anxiety are inseparable that you can't talk about one without talking about the other for example if there are stressors in my life and I don't know what the hell they are or, or I don't know what the terrible thing that's coming down the pike is going to be or whatever, but if I'm feeling anxiety, this kind of generalized anxiety, that in and of itself is a stressor. Yes. So then it becomes this, this ugly feedback loop. Well, I'm anxious and that's a stressor and then I'm stressed, which makes me anxious, but being anxious is a stressor and that stress makes me, and I, that, Somehow, some way, something has to, if it, it, especially if it's something that I do for myself, has to break that cycle. Yeah. And that first step was the one we just talked about. And that is being able to say, okay, maybe stress has been such an ongoing part of my life that I don't know that this is the normal way to live. Maybe I need to identify that, that all of this, <clears throat> this energy and this buzzing and this itchiness in my life existentially, maybe that's anxiety and maybe there's another way. Yeah. Not easy. Nope. Nope. Nobody ever said it would be easy. <clears throat> However, well, it's Go not ahead. bigger than us. It's not bigger than us and it's something that we can work through. Usually, yeah. I'll tell you, anxiety was such a pervasive thing in my practice because I I spent a lot of my practice dealing with people with addictions. And the, the thing about addictions is that among other things, of besides stealing your soul and your life and the rest, uh, it addictions end up being reinforced and supported by the fact that they bind anxiety. That in fact, a, an anxious moment comes up and people fall back into that 
terrible addictive habit of theirs, and that binds their anxiety. And but when they stop using, or when they break the addiction, then the anxiety comes up, and they have no tools for binding it. And it, it was it was an ongoing challenge with people who were trying to to kick their addictions, is that in the past, when they tried to kick their addiction, there would be an eruption of the anxiety that they didn't know how to deal with, but they did know how to deal with it. And that was to relapse into their addiction. So in my business, if you wanted to get over an addiction, you had to do three things at once. You had to not do the addiction, but you had to deal with your anxiety. You had to learn the new tools and you had to learn how to deal with depression because that was going to come too. Very common people. Yeah. You would, you would think that people wouldn't grieve their addiction, but everybody does. Yeah. Makes sense though. You know, I mean, something that has helped you through the anxiety for all of those years and you know it, it becomes your best friend yeah it, and so well, maybe not best friend but constant companion that's for sure yeah yeah, yeah. i i don't i didn't mean you know, we don't <laughs> want to think of a, of a best friend and, and that that scenario but you know it becomes such a part of us because that's how mm -hmm. we cope with it Right. And so finding other ways to to be able to cope with it, um, you know, and with that, I feel like it's easier sometimes for doctors to just prescribe some medication instead of, you know, the tools that you can do in 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 your living room to, you know, help through that. Yeah. And, and it's something you said earlier. We're not saying that med medication doesn't have a role. But I think we need to say that medication isn't the be-all and end-all. Exactly. And unfortunately, in, in our world, when the doc gives you a prescription, you think that's it. Uh, we've forgotten how to seek spiritual and existential health for ourselves as well. Yes. And I have I have a friend who um, who takes anti-anxiety medication and she says, you know, your problems are still there. They're just on the other side of the room. <laughs> you know? Hiding in the pill bottle. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that's right. And, and that I've worked through the years with a bunch of psychiatrists and most of them are, are real tuned into that to knowing that, there's a behavioral element to this recovery as well from anxiety and from depression and so on. Where, where I always had a problem through the years, uh, a greater problem was with general practitioners. Uh, and I'm, I'm, this is no slam against general practitioners and I don't want to get some phone calls. But general practitioner, people would go to their general practitioner and say, I can't sleep or I'm feeling profoundly depressed or I, and, and they are practicing physicians and they know to prescribe medication and they will prescribe the medication, but they don't as often pay attention to the whole behavioral piece of it. Not as often as the good psychiatrist fight. So it, it, it's, 
I've, I've always found that people will show up at my door after years of being on medication, but trying to stop the medication because they think they're okay now. And then they're not. And then they, and finally they show up at my door and the combination of the medication and their own power brings them to some happier place. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing to me that that most of the people who are on medication for anxiety or for depression really do need the medication to bridge them into that place where they've learned to live a more wholesome life, but that most of them will not have to have that medication for the rest of their lives ordinarily. Yeah, and it's sad they don't know that. Yeah, well, and and too, you know, talking about the general practitioners not trying to slam them, I feel it's just the society that that we're in. But you know, it reminds me of a of a meme that I saw where it said, you know, you go into the doctor with all of your symptoms that are going on, and the question never is, did you experience trauma? Hmm you know, and, and kind of backtracking that and, and going back and healing that and what, what tools and techniques could they implement in their life? You know, yes, absolutely. Some people need medication, but give them something else, right? Like what other tools, what other tools and techniques can people use, not just taking the pills? I think one of the things that people are makes people resistant to coming to folks like us uh, is that somehow they maybe don't know this consciously, but unconsciously they believe that we're going to ask them to stop doing the thing that they've been doing all these years to bind their anxiety. And what they need to know is that we're not going to ask them to do that we're going to ask them to do some additional things. Don't give those away. They still have power, but use it more strategically. The thing you used to do all the time, how about if you only do it when it really works? Yeah. And how about some new things to do? Yeah. But I think the real fear, that, and, and, I've, and I've heard this, I can't tell you from how many people, I was afraid that you were going to tell me I was crazy or inadequate or inept, or stupid. I thought you were going to tell me to stop being who I am and stop being somebody else. No, keep being yourself. Just how about yourself plus? Yeah. It's amazing that people would come to me for anxiety, being so anxious to come to me for anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. And the anxiety wasn't enough. They had to have a crisis, right? Well, and I and you know, I think we we can get into that a little bit more in our next episode as far as that stigma around asking for men, for mental health care. And um, you know, and especially for men, you know, men are are told, you know, from when they're little boys not to cry and suck it up. And, you know, I feel like women are too, but 
just as a society, we're not taught to embrace working on our mental health. It's something that, oh, you're going to a therapist or you're seeing a coach or you, you know, you're not perfect. No, nobody's perfect. Well, that the the I think what drives the stigma is people believe that if you once you say you're going to see a therapist or a counselor or a, or a coach, that you are somehow defective, yes, and that you need to be fixed. When um, I'll bet you a third of my clientele came to me because they were aware and pretty well and wanted to be weller. Yeah. 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 So, and they didn't bother to worry about what people might say about them coming to see somebody like us. However, but what point do they, do, I, I feel like it's not like an instant thing necessarily, you know, that they've got to go through a lot before they get to the point and they're like, okay, you know, I, I need some support. As, as I reflect on that, the folks who came to that point, that awareness of, yeah, I got to do this, were in their 40s and 50s, or they were 13, 14, or 15. Hmm. And they didn't, at being at that 13 through 16 age, they didn't know that they weren't supposed to be coming to see me yet. They no. hadn't gotten that lesson yet. No. Boy, but after that, it took them a while of, of going through serial crisis and finally saying, okay, I give up. I think I've tried everything. Well, let's try this one really absurd thing of going and talking to somebody that we can learn to trust. Yeah. Well, well you say you want to talk about, what do you want to talk about next time? Uh, stigma? Yeah. Well, mean? I mean, I, I, stigma against people asking for help and support and going to a therapist or a coach or, um, you know, seeking other ways to alleviate the the anxiety and and stress mm. yeah well let's do that let's see universalizing i'm gonna make a note so that with that's what we talk about next time perfect okay good deal all right. By the way, it's about it's about time, I think, for us to be finished with this session, isn't it? It is. It is. What a great conversation. Thanks so much, Bill. Yep. I'll see you next time. All right. See ya. Bye, folks. Bye. -bye. Thanks for joining us. Join us on Mondays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Enjoyed this podcast? Follow us on social media, Truth Be Told, One World.